Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our next segment of Classical Wisdom Symposium 2021, The End of Empires and the Fall of Nations. I hope you have enjoyed the first segment. We're going to begin the second segment with Victor Davis Hanson and Niall Ferguson. Um, please remember you can write in questions, you can add to the chat. Please be kind and considerate. This is a space where we're looking for the, the truth of uh and trying to understand the, the true nature of things. So with that, I would like to introduce our next presenter. Uh, our moderator for this next section will be uh, Alexandra Hudson. She's the author and founder of Civic Renaissance, an intellectual community dedicated to beauty, goodness, and truth, and reviving the wisdom of the past. She's working on her first book on civil discourse for St. Martin's Press. Uh, so with that, I would like to Welcome to the stage, Alexandra Hudson. She will be the moderator for our next section. And thank you very much. Thank you, Anya. And thanks so much to Classical Wisdom for inviting me to be a part of this wonderful symposia and, and series of conversations. It's really a privilege um, for me to introduce uh, Dr. Hansen. Victor Davis Hansen is the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He is an American scholar of ancient and modern warfare and has been a commentator on contemporary politics for various media outlets for many years. He's a professor emeritus of classics at California State University, Fresno. And Dr. Henson was uh, awarded the National Humanities Medal in 2007 by President George W. Bush. And he was a recipient of the Bradley Prize, very esteemed prize in 2008. Um, he is also the author of many books, including Who Killed Homer, The Demise of Classical Education and the Recovery of Greek Wisdom, The Father of Us All, and um, War and History, Ancient and Modern, Carnage and Culture, Landmark Battles and the Rise uh, to Western, and most recently, Mexifornia, <laughs> A State of Becoming. So it's my pleasure to, um, to introduce uh, and moderate this conversation with, 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 uh, with Dr. Hansen on, on why did the free city-state disappear? So thank you so much for being here, Dr. Hansen. Thank you for having me. Uh, I understand that it's not popular in scholarship in general and classical studies in particular to make sweeping generalizations about uh, that at any particular point in society collapses. Because when we talk about the end of the free city states, we're not talking about their complete obliteration. They continue um, after the Battle of Chaeronea, if we want to take that point in their loss of autonomy in 338 BC, or if you prefer the Lamian War on the death of Alexander in their brief revolt, which was put down. Uh, they continue under the successor kingdoms until their absorption by Rome. But, and they're not certainly, they didn't. Uh, all the city-states didn't suffer the fate of classical Thebes in 335 that was destroyed by Alexander the Great and the entire population enslavement. The, the city leveled with exception supposedly of Pindar's house. And so they're not like, they're not like the, the fate of Milos or Thebes. So there is a continuation. And then these questions of why these major, major historical developments happen, they really don't have simple answers. We don't know why, for example, uh, the Western Empire fell in the last portion of the fifth century AD, but the Byzantine 
Eastern Empire continued for a thousand years. Gibbon said Christianity, remember 200 years ago was the cause of Western fall, but it was even more uh, orthodox if you make, can use that word in the East. Maybe it was geography, maybe it was a difference in provincial administration, maybe it was a difference in the enemies, but it's very hard to chart these sweeping questions. And uh, we don't know why all of a sudden the Aztec Empire in 521 was destroyed by Cortez with a fraction with probably no more than 3,500 Spanish conquistadors and then 60 or 70,000 indigenous allies. You can make the argument it was a difference in technology or the presence of forces or the peculiar nature of Aztec warfare. But it's, so it's very difficult. Um, to, to ask yourself, why did these 1,500 city-states, I'm just taking a pretty accepted figure for how many Greek city-states there were from roughly 800 BC down to the incorporation in, uh, by Rome. Why were they able to, uh, why was Alexander the Great in, at 18 and his father Philip II, the Battle of Carinae in 338, essentially to terminate, why were they able to terminate Greek autonomy and freedom this was an army from the north, um, and 150 years earlier, roughly, in a series of battles at Salamis and Plataea, a much larger army from the north, Xerxes, uh, 250,000 uh, combined naval and land troops were not able to conquer, conquer Greece. And yet you could make the argument that if you look at the archeological remains or literary descriptions or epigraphical evidence, that the city-state in the latter part of the fourth century was materially wealthier than it had been in 480. And whatever we think of um, uh, Alexander the Great, his army and Philip II's army was much smaller than than King Xerxes, so we're left with a dilemma. And I'd like to suggest that whenever we have such dilemma, there's always an immediate answer, and then there's maybe we could argue a short-term answer and then a long-term answer. The short-term answer why these city-states were not able to repel the Macedonian invasion and lost their freedom was there wasn't very many of them. If we look at, there was only about eight city-states eight or nine that showed up at Carinae in 338. Sparta didn't, and Sparta had been sort of emasculated as the fourth century wore on. And the main contingents were Athens and Thebes. And the Theban army, you could make the argument, was not the same as 40 years earlier at the Battle of Leuctra. And, the same, and you could make the argument that the Athenians were not the same uh, in fighting abilities that they were you know, say Battle of Mantinea, Delium, even though uh, they sent a small contingent of 200 or 300 to Mantinea and at Delium, first battle and then at Delium they lost, but there had been an erosion in fighting ability. And so one simple answer is they didn't have the numbers. During the uh, resistance of Xerxes, if you look at the serpent column that I guess was carted off by Constantine to Constantinople, we have some 30 plus city-states that sent major contingents to Salamis, but especially to Plataea. That was what the, the column uh, was honorific, uh, in honorific fashion that recorded. So there were fewer Greek city-states. Why was that? Why were they squabbling? In a, in a, and we'll get to that in a minute in long-term um, 
reasons. The second thing is militarily, the Macedonian army, of course, wasn't like Xerxes. It wasn't like the Greeks. They had had radical uh, reforms, if we could use that term. They had been introduced to heavy armament and the tactics and strategy of phalanx warfare probably as early as the late fifth century. However, in Macedon, they used the phalanx in a very different way with serious combined arms. So they had what we would call heavy cavalry, cavalry men that had some protection for the horse, but more importantly, they didn't just throw javelins or use swords, but they themselves had services or pikes. But the real change came with the Macedonian army because it was an ideologically different army. It was uh, a largely a mercenary or a forced recruitment army of about 30,000. The two armies at Chaeronea were equal in size, roughly. But they had reduced the shield, the hoplite shield of 15, 16 pounds and made it very small and uh, usually it was either attached to the arm or hung around the neck, and that did something quite revolutionary. It allowed both arms to be used for a pike rather than just a spear. A pike being not eight feet long, but 12, 14, 16. And I don't know if we should believe later accounts in the, in the Hellenistic period that some Macedonian armies had, you know, 20 or 22. I once built one, and they, they sort of looked like a rainbow. They're just they're too big. But the point I'm making is that they expanded the killing zone at the initial class of phalanxes from the first three rows to the first five. And we don't really understand the mechanics of hoplite warfare completely, whether the additional ranks for reinforcement or psychological reassurance, or they added dynamism through the, uh, these moss or the push. But whatever it is, it was a very different type of army than the classical Greek infantry phalanx. And when you combined it with heavy cavalry that could find a weakness in the long battle line as they did at Chaeronea and exploit it as Alexander did and his father, then you can see that it was a combined, a symphony of arms, not just a one-dimensional army. So there were, there were tactical reasons. There were uh, organizational reasons that they lost that battle in a way that they hadn't lost to Xerxes. But the short-term question then moving from the immediate causes, well, why didn't they adapt or why didn't they get more um, allies or why didn't they um, reorganize? And I think part of the problem was the 1500 Greek city-states, they don't have, they, there was not a word, there's words like hegemonia or hegemon, uh, hegemony, but they didn't have a word natio, nation. In other words, there was no concept for all the Panhellenic games and for all the various leagues of Corinth and et cetera. They did not have a concept that a member of the Theban city-state community or Sparta or Argos had more in common with other Greeks than they did their own uh, citizens. And so they were not able to utilize the entire strength, every type, time they fought a foreign war, there was either people medizing in the case of the Persians or joining uh, Philip. And in, in, in truth, when Philip marched south, there were Greeks within his army. And then after his def- uh, victory at Chaeronea, there were a lot of Greeks that helped even enslave uh, the Thebans and destroy their city. So there was no concept that a Greek said to himself, I 
have more common with people, although it's mentioned Herodotus and other classical sources, but it was never institutionalized, this idea that I have more in common with people who speak the same language and they worship the same gods, they have the same rituals, they have the same Panhellenic festivities, and that far outweighs my local or regional or kin ties with people uh, in my immediate vicinity that have a, a, a Athenian dialect or speak in the manner of the oceans. And that hurt them because they were never able to create the unity necessary uh, for a small nation that was relatively poor to utilize all their resources. And Rome, of course, um, changed that. The, the other, and one of the reasons that was, I think, is the idea of classical citizenship was a static and inert idea rather than a dynamic idea. And it simply said that in most city states, you needed to have two free parents Later that was changed at Athens and we don't know how many other one parent, but essentially it said that except for honorific decrees that will allow medics or resident aliens to, to have citizenship, the citizen body was defined by demography and fertility. And it was not based on merit or social economic needs or the strategic requirements of the city state. And that meant probably by the uh, fourth century there were a lot of people in Athens, less so in Thebes, because Athens, of course, was a cosmopolitan seaport, radical democracy. Athens, uh, Thebes was a more of an agrarian, by that time, democracy, but agrarian without property qualification. But nonetheless, there were people in those city-states that were wealthier than citizens, that were more uh, adept at business, that knew more about the world in some cases than Athenians did, and yet they were not fully integrated into the body politic. And as opposed to Roman history, where the city of Rome eventually redefined Romanness to, to include Northern Italians and then Southern Italians and then Sicilian Italians and people who spoke Latin. And then as the empire expanded and Mar Nostrum became sort of a globalized international community by the Caracalis time, they officially gave citizenship to people who looked nothing like original Italians and their Latin to the extent that it existed was probably pretty poor. But the number of emperors in the third and fourth century that were non-Italian were probably greater than those that were Italian by far. And so part of the reasons that, that this Greek city-state ended, and now I'm getting into the long-term uh, reasons was it was a um, an evolutionary dead end, if I could use that that arbitrary term, in a way that Rome Rome, Rome was a fluid and evolving concept. It meant that the, the city state was not able to adapt its political formation or structure to accommodate radical changes in the economy or radical changes in warfare. I'll just give you an example. You could make the argument that. Um, the hoplite phalanx was an obsolete military formation by 3, 340 or 343, 4, 340 to 330. Or you could make the idea that the Athenian Navy was no longer able to show um, complete excellence. It, it, the trireme warfare of the fifth century was obsolete. And yet that type of warfare was also predicated rather than on purely military efficacy 
that was predicated on social and political concerns, i.e. the landowning class felt that it was their obligation, their duty and their responsibility, and it was in their interest to fight as uh, people who were in the particular census class on land who could afford, originally who could for, afford their own armor, then later who perhaps had the non-landed wealth that was equivalent uh, to earlier rubrics. And the same thing with landless people, they felt that tri service in the trireme was more than just naval service, but it was an empowerment of the landless and poor classes. Rome, Macedon, uh, they had no allegiance to these social uh, lanes, so to speak. And in the case of Philip of Macedon, you can see the ramifications of that ideology. Philip didn't really care whether a particular soldier got killed. I mean, every general does, but it wasn't, it was a military, uh, it was a military loss. And uh, it was not, it was not a uh, social and political and economic and cultural catastrophe. And so you can see it in the, in the, in the armament, as I said about the shield, but Macedonians did not carry heavy heavy, uh, you know, 20 pound armor because they were not necessarily citizens, but they were recruited as mercenaries and they were paid as mercenaries and their skills and their futures as fighters depended on their professional um, efficacy. Whereas in the city state, there was an investment in arming a, a phalanx fighter, not just to kill the enemy, but to protect a landowner citizen. And that, 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 admirable holistic unity between military and civic life on the actual battlefield probably proved to be a liability. And when you add other people into the equation and say the Macedonian army, you were, you were empowering light armed uh, javelin throwers, archers, light cavalry, heavy cavalry, uh, skirmishers, phalanx. So you had sort of two punching arms and then uh, of cavalry and then aerial assault to find a weak point in the enemy. And then the, this mercenary phalanx with its long pikes to blast it open. To do that or to find something comparable for a city-state army meant that they had to either jetson or ad radically adapt the social ramifications of empowering those types of people on the battlefield. But in an autocratic society like Phillips that was I shouldn't say autocratic, it was better a monarchy that was supported by five or 6,000 aristocratic landowners. They didn't have that problem. They were given privilege on the battlefield as heavy cavalrymen, and then they recruited the necessary contingents. They didn't really worry where they come, came from or the consequences in social economic terms of whether they did well or poorly on the battlefield. They were modern in the sense that uh, they were utilitarian. So when we look at this decline of the, of the city-states, we can explain in strategic and tactical and operational terms why they lost at Chaeronea and why they lost later in, in 322, um, a so-called Lamian War. But in the immediate, and then in the immediate um, larger picture, we can say that they didn't react militarily in a way necessary to repel a much smaller invasion of Philip of Macedon because they had limitations on the structure of the city-state. They did not incorporate people that 
that were unlike a regional culture or a local culture into the formal citizenship of the polis. They didn't do that, much less did they, were they able, they were unable to incorporate 1500 city-states into an idea of nationhood to unify, uh, unify their uh, Panhellenic culture and to fuel it and to force multiply it in terms of number and solidarity. And uh, too many people were outside the city-state's um, privileges and not those too many people were unfortunately people who, because they were outside the city-states, they were relegated to non-landed or non-prestigious activity. But as the Mediterranean under the Hellenistic world and later Rome became more complex, it was precisely those skills in banking and commerce and trade and non-landed wealth that allowed certain members that had been outliers culturally and politically, socially to be the wealthier and the more adept and the more imaginative. And yet, unlike Rome, these were not incorporated in, into the, the idea of a, of a Greek commonwealth. Um, I'd like to finish with some other uh, comments. When we talk about an empire falling or a, a city-state being destroyed, what does that mean? We bombed on March 11th, uh, 1945, in the, the most uh, violent day in the history of warfare. We, we bombed Tokyo with napalm, 315, 320 B-29s came in low. They incinerated the city. That was probably 150,000 dead, 14 acres were obliterated. And we followed that up in August with two nuclear bombs or atom bombs as we say at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we destroyed utterly Japanese militarism. We did the same with Nazi Germany to a lesser extent Mussolini's Italy. But within five to 10 years, uh, there, was, there was something called a German nation with people who were German. The vast majority survived the war as they did in Japan, as they did in Italy. And you could make the argument by 1950, they were autonomous free countries and they had emulated um, their earlier histories. Even in Japan, they had some experience with uh, constitutional government, but they, were, they didn't look back at um, being completely destroyed by World War II in the sense of an existential Holocaust. And the same, I think, is, um, is true of China. China lost 15 million people. Uh, the Shanghai government fell apart. There was a communist revolution. Mao would go on to kill 50 or 60 million people. But Chinese culture, in a sense of people speaking the same language and staying uh, in the same place, uh, endured. That's not true sometimes in history. And I mentioned the sack of Thebes. We could talk about the destruction of Milos in 416, 415, where all of the population was enslaved uh, and the males were killed and the city was obliterated. And I think you'd make the argument by 300, somebody who spoke the Theban dialect of Boeotia only existed within a... Uh, as a slave within a Boeotian or a Macedonian or an Athenian or any other Greek household. The same, I think, would be true of um, Aztec culture. By 1521, you could make the argument that there was no such thing as Tenochtitlan and the Aztec or Mexica culture. There were still a few people who 
uh, spoke that language, 90% of them were either killed by disease or Spanish conquest or the, or the enlistment of hostile uh, allies. But that ceased to exist as a, uh, as a continuous civilization. If you turn to North Africa, the same is true of Belisarus, and that he obliterated the Vandal Empire and extinguished what was left of it in the 520s in Sicily. And by 530 or 540, there were no, I guess, people who originally had been from Ger Northern Germany and Poland who had come, been very successful 100 years, but they ceased to exist as a civilization. The same was true of Carthaginian society. You could make the argument that people uh, who did speak Carthaginian years after the final destruction of the city in 146 uh, were spread out, they were dispersed and they were, they were not a cohesive civilization or people, and they never would be again. So this, I'd like to leave you, uh, and then we can open up to questions. What, why do some civilizations, and the, ones, the examples I've cited uh, are all of different sizes, different historical circumstances, but why do some societies fall apart utterly and they're destroyed and why do some continue? And I mentioned very earlier, why did the Western Empire fall apart? And I think you could say that was an utter destruction of Rome, although that's very un unpopular today. We always now kind of say late antiquity is a continuation of Roman civilization, which is, I think, a very different idea than the destruction of Roman imperial civilization, but vestigial elements of it evolving to form the Middle Ages and later Renaissance culture. They're very different ideas. But what? It, why is it? And the answer probably is the decisions that particular leaders make or the idea that they are not evolving to meet uh, foreign threats, threats, strategic limitations of their leadership, or it's internal reasons. And we look at internally, it's usually the same culprits throughout history. There's a lack of unity along, among the population. There is great doubt about the currency, usually due to inflation or the printing of coinage, uh, the stamping of coinage and its issuance without uh, increased population or gains in productivity. Or a very common theme in classical antiquity, going back to Hesiod, but very apparent in the Neronian age in literature such as Sallust or uh, I shouldn't say Sallus, excuse me, Petronius or Suetonius or Tacitus is this, or Catullus earlier, is this role of luxus, the idea that civilizations that are very successful become, uh, they take their eye off the ball of their evolutionary processes that gave them such leisure or wealth or capital or efficient productivity, and then they fall victim to affluence and leisure, and they're not able to artificially create uh, self-sacrifice, whether that's on the battlefield or paying for wars. In the case of Athens, getting back to the original theme of this uh, talk, you can see it in, in, although we don't have a continuous narrative as we do for the early, um, the fifth century and the early fourth century, you do see it in later historians like Diodorus, especially in the corpus of speeches of Demosthenes and we have to be very careful how they're used, but there's this constant reference to the theoria or the theoretic fun, theoric fun. And the argument is that initially a fund that helped the poor uh, attend festivities, and Athens had more festivities than any other city state, 
had been transmogrified into sort of a subsidy where people were paid to attend or paid to put on lavish productions. And at the same time, the fund for military operations shrunk, shrunk and shrunk. And so we end up with Demosthenes railing and railing and railing for about 20 years of his life that although Athens is far wealthier than it was in its early years, uh, the amount of money spent, I guess we would say in modern terms, a percentage of GDP spent on defense in a percentage or real term had been uh, steadily decreasing because people felt as Athenians or members of affluent Greek city-states that they had solved the essential problems of life, food, fuel, protection, security, and they were now in what had gone on to what we might call the good life. And the good life meant psychologically that because you had been able to evolve from a day-by-day existence, that perhaps your view of your own success uh, could be attributed to everybody. And that enemies, existential enemies, people that hate you, people that wanted to destroy you, even though it was not in their interest, people wanted to destroy themselves to destroy you. They just weren't part of your imagination and therefore you really didn't think they existed or if they did exist, your superior culture technology would handle them. You can see some elements of that very early in the first century in Rome, but also in, in the later centuries where people not only attributed this savage quality to Goths or Huns or Vandals or Ostgoths, but they had almost an admiration for them. And that, that even appears in classical literature where the Thracians or the Ambracians or the Aetolians or any of these non-city-state wild people or the Thessalian cavalry or the Macedonian cavalry or elements of people who don't fully, or people in Crete that don't fully participate in the city-state while they're deprecated as less than civilized, there is also a, a very strange admiration for them that they're somehow pure in the way that passes this Germania some ways a very dangerous text because it suggests that people that lived on the other side of the Danube and Rhine were not fully incorporated into Romanity, the Roman Empire, the multicultural, multiracial, multilingual, and therefore they retained sort of a savage purity and unity. And you can see where that idea evolved in later European history because from Hegel or Nietzsche or Spengler on to Hitler, it was the idea that, well, we're the only country in, in Europe that is a blood and soil country, that to be German, you have to be more in, than speak German or be born in Germany or live here. You have to be part of the soil that was never contaminated uh, by Western civilization because we were on not the wrong side, but we were on, they thought, the right side of the Danube. And that was very infectious. Uh, just to finish, Franco wrote a, uh, a novel called La Raza. And in fact, our term today that's very contentious in America, La Raza originates from, I think you could argue, Franco's idea that to be an Iberian, you needed to be something, he, wrote a, he produced a movie about it, Raza, you can still watch it. But you, can, you have to be something more than a Spanish speaker to be born in Portugal or, or Spain. You had to be, have roots that went back to the original Spanish speaking by Spanish non-Latinate people that spoke Iberian that you start to encounter in some Roman literature during the conquest of Spain and, and Mussolini did the same thing. He added this, an extra Z and it was La Raza and it was the same idea. But 
what I'm getting at is that these aberrant ideologies of uh, anti-civilizational uh, blood and soil purity, they're important to understand because they reflect the dominant Western view of these ideas. And we're seeing it today with the fall of Afghanistan. And it's a very timely discussion we're having because we had the most sophisticated, complex, well-armed, well-organized uh, army in the history of civilization, military, that was able to project power anywhere we wanted in a way the Taliban would have failed anywhere outside of Afghanistan. It didn't have the logistic or operational or uh, financial capability to to be to reach over the horizon to quote our military um, apparatus when they talk about deploying people at long distances. But nevertheless, they defeated the United States, and and they say that they did it because they were unified and they were not corrupted as we were. Their soldiers didn't have latte break, and that's I think it's a disparagement to say that because American soldiers are very brave. But you can see these age-old tensions between the the polis and the Macedonians or the Romans and the Goths or the Vandals. It's, it, it forms a, a philosophical or an existential question in Western thinking that are, they, are Westerners at some point always able to protect themselves by relying on technology and wealth and organization and science, which and I wrote a book suggesting they were, but on the other hand, in that process of sophistication, do they lose their martial audacity because their own success makes the life, life so good that one would be insane to forfeit it? And with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Hansen. That was a wonderful, uh, wonderful series of, of insights about why the Greek city-state fell. Uh, we have some really thoughtful questions from our audience. So thanks to those of you who sent in some questions. Um, so first question, Dr. Hansen, part of your argument is that the Greek city-state became static and couldn't adapt to the social, military, military and economic changes, which is why it didn't survive the Macedon invasion. Do you think that American democratic capitalism ha has the flexibility needed to adapt um, to post-imperial changes in the world in, the, in a way that the Greek city-states did not? And how would you compare uh, where we are today to where the Greek city-state was? Yeah. Well, to, to continue the direct parallelism, our notion of citizenship, unlike almost anywhere in the world, is not based on a blood and soil concept. So if you go to Japan, I don't, I don't know what the ethnic makeup of our audience of nearly 190 people is, but if you don't look Japanese, you're not going to be fully accept, accepted in Japan. I can tell you that I have a multiracial family and I have Mexican uh, nephews and in-laws. And if they go to Mexico with one of their children who's not fully Mexican, they feel out of place. And, and our country in this difficult, complex history is a multiracial society where citizenship is an idea. It's not a tribal concept. And I think that in a very, if, it's, if we have citizenship that can be legal, meritocratic, um, and tall, and I should say manageable in the sense of assimilation, integration, and, and intermarriage, then that's a plus. We should also remember very quickly that globalization is really a synonym for westernization. When we're talking about globalization, we're talking about somebody wearing Nike's tennis shoes in Chad, or people in Brazil having Levaquin or Cipro, or eyeglasses in Mongolia. These are western concepts, but we shouldn't fool ourselves. 
we and I think we have, we conflate the idea that people want Western consumer goods or scientific knowledge than that they also want Western custom. So I was talking not long ago that an Afghan refugee or person from that part of the world, and he's, he said, yes, it's absurd, um, our customs in Afghanistan. He's talking as a Westernized. And I said, you know, what do you, th why were we waving pride flags from the US embassy and having gender studies at the University of Kabul and insisting everybody had uh, woke indoctrination rather than just military efficacy. My point was we were engaged in a holistic effort as no other nation could to turn Afghanistan into us. And he pointed out that you people never understand that while our attitude to transgenderism and gayness and feminism is much older than yours, we're a much older society, we, we have different ideas and you find us crude and violent, and we are. But when you go into your stores, you see people wearing no shoes with bare chest. And uh, when you go on an airplane in a Western country, people look like they're at the beach. And we find that uh, repugnant. So I think part of our, we are posed in a way that no other nation is because we created globalization to adapt to it. But if we continue this kind of arrogance, that we're going to impose on everybody uh, this sort of egalitarian, radical egalitarian, radical utopian, radical ideal, idealistic, I guess we call it equity. Uh, I think a lot of people are gonna be in a lot of trouble because people are gonna resist that and they're gonna resist it with all of their forces. So I, I think we have to be a little bit more humble when live and let live fashion. Doesn't mean we have to give up our, our commitment to human rights, but we've got to get rid of this hubris that only we have the answers. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in how you characterized our, our conception of citizenship in an in, in American democratic society um, versus that of, of virtually every other um, nation in history. Um, we, we, we are a civic, not, we have civic nationalism. We're not, it's not blood and bought, it's not blood and soil. Um, yet even in addition to um, ethnic nationalism that has existed across time and place, the role of art and poetry and, 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 and books has been really important in forging national identity. Um, in, in the Greek context, of course, we have the Odyssey and the Iliad. In the Roman context, we have the Aeneid. Um, and, and I'm wondering, do you think, what is our national myth in America and how important is a national unifying myth um, for, and even an origin story for a nation and an empire to succeed? They're very important and they're even more important for multiracial democracies and constitutional governments and multi-ethnic that can't rely on the oldest of all ties of solidarity and that is birds of a feather flock together. We're, we, we're telling the world, I think the only two other two countries of our magnitude, India and Brazil have tried it with much less success, but we're telling the world that when Americans go places in the world, you can't tell by their superficial appearance whether they're American or not. That's not true of Germans for the most part. That's not true, as I said, of people in Latin America. That's not true of people in Asia or Africa. This is a radical concept, but it requires constant work. 
that we have to have a common national story. We have to have a, and whether we like it or not, the country was founded in the Western tradition of constitutional government, free market capitalism, uh, rationalism, more Christian, tolerance for religion as we see in the constitution, but with a Christian bias because 90% of the people who came over here were from Europe. But implicit in the constitution and the declaration was this idea of radical evolution beyond this, this dynamism or dominance of white male European products of the enlightenment who created the system, but in creating the system, they built into it an evolutionary process that might put them out of business as the most influ influential people in the society. They were very far, far seen. So what we see in the United States today, we have a black uh, vice president. We had a black president. Uh, I was watching Oprah from her 30, uh, $90 million um, home talk to Meghan Markle from her $15 million home and they were critiquing various ideas of America, but they represent the inherent logic of the declaration and the constitution. And so we need to under, go back to that. And for all of the prejudice and endemic, most societies have to have, to have two founding ideologies that have to be implicit. One is they're better than the alternative. If you do not think you're better than the alternative, then you have no reason to go on. So here we are with our top people in the Joint Chiefs. And I think it was General Miley said that we suffer from white rage and we do all, and all it was negative, negative. And then, then you say to yourself, it's, if it's so negative, why are 2 million people scheduled across the Southern border? Why are people hanging on a C-17 with just the, the faint chance that they can, their grip will endure you know, minus 50 degrees as they drop off like weights onto the ground. It makes no sense. And the second important idea in a multiracial democracy, you have to believe that you're good without having to be perfect. And so, yes, we have these terrible things like slavery, but 700,000 people died to eliminate it one way or the other. And they were successful on the union side. And we fought two world wars. Were we prejudiced? Were we less than perfect? Yes, but we destroyed uh, fascism and uh, Nazism that would have really changed the world as we know it today. And the same is true in the Cold War. So if you don't believe that you're better than the alternative and you don't believe that you don't have to be perfect, then you're not going to continue as a unified society. And I think that's our challenge right now. So I appreciate what you're saying that we need to uh, harken back to our founding ideals and, and unite around those because that's what makes us a civic nationalistic country and not and not a country defined by ethnic nationalism. But my question is, um, like, what is our our national myth? You know, I, I remember once I, I posed this on on Twitter and I got thousands of responses, which yeah. is not common for me. It's common for <laughs> famous people like you. Um, and, and people said everything from Moby Dick to Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, which I don't think anyone, <laughs> maybe a few people on this call, but certainly not a majority of Americans are conversant with either of those works in the way that the ancient Greeks would have um, been conversant with Homer yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or the Romans with Virgil. And, and though it's, it's, there's stories that embody the ideals that those cultures stood for. Um, do we have a work of art? a myth like that today yes. we do we have the dominant narrative that is embolized in our cultural traditions christmas thanksgiving uh our songs god bless america america the beautiful national uh, 
the national anthem, our monuments, the Washington Monument, Lincoln Memorial, Greco-Roman uh, architecture, a tradition of tolerance that embodies a Bill of Rights, and a faith in American um, exceptionalism. That's very important that we brought not the worst people in the world that were are tired and poor, but the people who were the most dynamic, who gave up everything to come to the United States and then join this melting pot creation. And then that was wedded not to superstitions and prejudices of the past, but it was a forward looking, progressive, scientific, technological, industrial people. And so we say in our national stories, when I was a young kid in a school three miles from where I'm speaking today in my farm, uh, I think there were six of us who were not Hispanic, but everybody believed in the exceptionalism of people like Alexander Graham Bell, Thomas Edison, Booker T. Washington, Lou Gehrig. We were given these heroes to, to study as the embodiment of a rugged American individual. You can critique it, but this is the key. With that dominant story, we incorporated critiques of it, nothing more than, no, no more evident than the great American novel. So when you look at Thomas Wolfe, You Can't Go Home Again, or Steinbeck, uh, The Grapes of Wrath, or Faulkner's Huge Corpus, or Jack London, or any of, uh, or any of these great novels in our history, then you see our invisible man. You see other people who are saying Americans are too materialistic or they value wealth too much, or they're insensitive to very, and this society then rather than rejects them and, and says they can't express themselves, they don't, these great thinkers don't have a good time in their own life necessarily, but they're incorporated into the story. So if I go to Monterey today, there's a Steinbach house, or if I go, when I was school, in school, we read of Mice and Men, or when I was in high school, we read You Can't Go Home Again or we read For Whom the Bell Souls. But all of these writers if you are F. Scott Fitzgerald or T.S. Eliot, they're ostensibly and even overtly criticizing the American concentration on scientific inhuman solutions or uh, on the accumulation of wealth, that you mold those orthodoxies and dissent and you get the American story. That's why a lot of people don't like us because they consider us unpredictable and unreliable because we're so volatile. Mm. It's an interesting insight that a lot of our, our the greatest works of art in the American context have embedded in them self-critique, as you as you mentioned. It reminds me of a great line from uh, sociologist Ernst Gellner about the antinomies of liberalism. Like within the liberal tradition, there is the freedom to sow the seeds of destruction within the liberal tradition. Yes. It's that freedom to criticize it um, that also undermines it. So very, yes. very interesting. Yeah. So these are a few questions that are um, actually going to be asked um, at the panel discussion tonight that you, I understand, won't be able to partake in. So some of the, um, the, the audience would love to hear your thoughts on this. So do empire, do states and empires differ, period, and then also differ in the way that they die? So do you accept that there's a difference between a state and empire and, and they differ in the way that they die? Well, empires by definition, extend their influence and power in a way that, even though they don't admit it, are, are based on a couple of different principles. That is the exploitation of people that are not their own. In the case of the British Empire, the American Empire, we feel that we're doing, we're bringing civilization to people, but they don't look at it that way, obviously. And then the second idea is that it requires a level of coercion. The Ottoman Empire, the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, the Caliphate, uh, 
all of these empires of various cultures and races and in historical periods, they have to suppress people's natural desire for autonomy. And they have to uh, balance the idea that it's in the interest of the imperial power to spend blood and treasure in places like Afghanistan if you're British. Lord Elphinstone, remember the first Afghan war, I mean, they were completely wiped out, 12,000 people for what in Afghanistan? The British or in the Zulu wars. People had to make that argument after Isla Wanda that it's in, it's in the British Victorian's interest to go down into what is now South Africa and fight Zulus. So it's, that's a hard sell. And that's why empires do fall. At some point, the imperial power doesn't have the resources to coerce subjects, or they come to their own conclusions, like the British did in the late 1940s, that it's either illogical economically in a cost-benefit analysis, or it's amoral to put your uh, to put your culture to imprint it on others for the purposes of. Of, of taking away their free, free will. And so it always requires a level of coercion. The Soviet Union learned that after 50 years. So what's what's strange though, just to finish very quickly about the United States, we didn't have colonies. And when we, when we sort of inherited them in the Spanish war and the Philippines and the Dominican, we didn't do a very good job with it. I mean, we don't, we, and we, you know, the Philippines were free after World War II and they were in a sort of a, Commonwealth relationship before that, but the United States has never be, has never been a colonial power. And when we were thrust into the leadership of the world in 1946, a role that we, given our past isolationism, especially after World War One, or after the Civil War, where we just disbanded this wonderful Union Army of Grant and Sherman, we had no idea that it could be used overseas. We didn't want it to be. People who looked at it, the German attache at the, at the Victory Parade in Washington thought that Sherman's army was the most powerful, deadly, terrifying thing in the world. And yet we disbanded it immediately. So we didn't really want that role. And then because of the strange uh, evolution of the, of the Cold War, we, we never really questioned it. And we got drawn in, drawn in. And now we're having finally, after 75 years and great success, at containing and then finally destroying the Soviet empire. Now we're having this national debate and people on the left and right are redefining the political parties because there's a, about half of America or more says, I don't want my child, I don't want my tax dollars to go over to Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, and try to tell, sell them on the beauties of a bicameral legislature or something like that, or the Bill of Rights. Or, you know, they have to wave a, a, a pride flag on the embassy. I'm, I'm not gonna pay for that. That's what they're telling. And then the other half says, well, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And remember 9-11, remember the Cold War and all this. So if you don't have some proactive preemptive shield, people will come to you. And that's a great debate we're having today. Thank you. Uh, we have another question uh, from a, a listener today, uh, paralleling your comments and insights to today and what's going on in Afghanistan, right? On that really tragic yes. situation there. Uh, you mentioned that one reason for the Macedon um, victory over the Greeks and the Greek and the fall of the Greek city-state was their milita military superiority and sophistication. Uh, for example, the, the, the refined uh, phalanx. Yeah. And um, I mean, 
we, I think what we're seeing in Afghanistan right now is that, as you mentioned, we, we, we are the most sophisticated army in the world. Um, but that's, that wasn't enough, you know, two decades there, that, that wasn't enough. That's, I think that's what we're seeing in, in, in Afghanistan and that, you know, superimposing ideas, um, uh, ideas of democracy and the rule of law and institutions that, that we tried and that, that was never going to be enough. So, so military sophistication, not enough. Like what, what can we learn from that? And it, it reminds me of a great um, book by um, Ernst, Ernst Gellner called The Conditions of Liberty. You just mentioned the yeah. Soviet Union a few moments ago where he talked about um, airdropping institutions and, and, um, and, and democracy and, and free markets on post-Soviet countries. Didn't work either. Why? Because they lacked the, the social trust and that kind of civic fiber that, that supports these institutions of a free society. So I'd be curious um, for you to kind of tease that out a little bit. You know, what, what, yeah. why, why is military, to, military superiority not enough? And, and what are we yeah. seeing right now in Afghanistan? Well, there was no question that we had the superior technology because as soon as the Taliban captured this $75 billion trove, you, as you saw yesterday, people started equipping themselves with night vision helmets and M4s and M16s. So they like the equipment. They feel it's superior to their own. But the better question is, why did we lose? And the answer I think everybody understands is that we decided, like Alexander the Great and the British, and that was probably wise, to concentrate on the city, the cities, Kandahar or Kabul and the plains, because we couldn't go up in the mountains. But then we westernized in a very good way. We brought our values of equality between the sexes and the different ethnic groups. And we tried to introduce a transparent bureaucracy and stamp out corruption. But in this insidious process over 20 years, we were basically telling them, you're going to fight like we do. You're gonna look like we do as far as your dress. You're gonna act like we do because it lead you to the wealth and leisure that we have. But meanwhile, in this 38 million person country, there were a lot of people who said we're a traditional society, we're Islamic and we're patriarchal. We don't believe in the equality of the sexes. We have a very different view of yours. And more and most importantly, while you are modernizing the elites of our country, you have no idea that you are making life so good. They have their cell phones, they have their imported Chevys and Fords and Toyotas. They have their washing machines. They have their nice lawns around their gut. You're making them weaker because their life is going to be becoming precious for them and as it is for you, but it's not for us. We feel that the real reward is in the next world. And so we're able to blow each other. We're able to have suicide bombers. We're able to send people on suicide missions, but the Afghan army is starting to resemble the humanity and the compassion and the civilization of your armies. And it's not willing to do that. And so every society has a Western or a non-Western or a trademark way of war. America has the, the greatest destructive power in the history of civilization. It's when it combines organization and technology, and it has a purpose that's existential. So we have to, world, today we argue about dropping the bomb, but we don't argue about bombing Dresden that much anymore. People say it's a war crime, but not in comparison to the Holocaust. But we inflicted a level of damage on enemies that's just staggering in World War II. We did it in the Korean War and then with less success in Vietnam. But when we have less success and we continue to have less success, it is because 
we say to people, we're restless people. We want to find the enemy and destroy him and then humiliate them and then rebuild him in our image. And if we can't do that, we say that we can fight in the streets of Basra or Kabul or we have special forces. And we're very good at that, but not as good as the enemy. So when we go in places where it's not conducive to our type of warfare and it's not conducive to public opinion, then we don't do well. And think of, I'll just finish with the asymmetry. I was embedded twice in Iraq and you talk to people and as one guy put it to me, when you get a, a major command of a Apache helicopter group and he's emailing his children every night back in Illinois, Southern Illinois about do your homework, make sure you listen to your mom. I'll be back for Christmas. He has latte, he has a haagen bar during the day. And then you put him up in a helicopter and he's supposed to machine gun these people. And Ahmed shoots an RPG in Black Hawk Down style and shoots him down. And he fall, his aircraft falls and kills 15 people that were, you know, Bathist terrorists. Then in classical military doctrine, we lost one person and, ca and they lost 15, but that doesn't apply there. It means that we lost a $2 million investment in that airplane and the people in that community are gonna be shocked and they're gonna ask themselves, why did somebody at the pinnacle of his life in the greatest period of his education, responsibility, family life at 35, why did he die in a far off place? And people in Iraq are gonna say, this is really great. It took 15 to kill this, invader, but it was worth it. And they're all going to be um, in paradise by now. So those are asymmetries in capital and expenditure and culture and religion. And it should remind us that if we're going to go into those environments and landscapes, we better be very, very careful. Mm. Unless you're going to defeat the enemy. And if you're going to defeat the enemy, you have to unleash a level of violence that's antithetical to the therapeutic society that you've become. And so I think what we're getting to is uh, I'm very worried, not that I condone violence, but I don't know what we would do now if the Chinese move on Taiwan or North Korea threatens South Korea or the Chinese move on Japan or Australia. And they're capable of doing that because we could stop them, but only using a level of conventional violence if it didn't go nuclear, God forbid, that is antithetical to the pretensions of this society. We feel we've, we've transcended violence. We feel that we're on the cusp of, of uh, a fair and equitable society. We don't believe human nature is constant, that it's evolved to a higher level in America and in the West in general. And they, our adversaries don't have those pretensions. And so if you look through history, the society that feels it's leisured and absolute and pretentious whether they're on the walls of Constantinople and they're going around asking the bishop for penance if they kill somebody and the people below are saying, you know, if I kill this person, there's certain rewards that are carnal in heaven. That's an asymmetry. Hmm. Dr. Hansen, thank you so much thank, for your time you. being part of this conversation. It was a pleasure. It's my first time meeting you, so a real pleasure for me to meet you. And thank I you. know that everyone on this call uh, really, really benefited from, from your insights and, and this dialogue. So thank you so much for being here. Um, and with that, we will transition to our next speaker, uh, Dr. Niall Ferguson. So um, thanks. I think we'll take a very, just a brief break, but thank you so much, Dr. Hansen. Thank you.